Hi, and welcome to Globe Bears of the International Relations Council of Berkeley. Today's podcast will give you some updates on what's going on in the Ukraine war right now and how the war has affected different regions. I'm Cassidy, a fourth year global studies major at Berkeley. And I'm Arjun. I study computer science and political science here at Berkeley. So let's give some quick background on the crisis. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February marked a new page for the eight-year conflict. This was the first time a European state annexed another since World War II. More than 14,000 people have died since the start of this conflict. So why Crimea? Why this region? Um, Russia's drive for influence in what they consider to be the near abroad is really about Russia's trying to regain their status as a great global power. Seizing Crimea is a strategic hold um, in the Black Sea region, and Ukraine's turn towards democracy and a possible NATO membership really threatens Putin's control over what he considers this region of the near abroad. The near abroad is really the ex-USR states like Crimea, um, or Ukraine, Moldova, um, Georgia, all of those places where they used to have influence and would much like to regain that influence. Putin also likes to push the view that Russia and Ukraine are one people. This goes back to the point that Ukraine was once part of Russia, and he's just, in his view, trying to restore the great mother Russia. Most Ukrainians, however, strongly disagree. Crimea may be the exception where part of the population does really identify with Russia, but like I said, this is the exception. The rest of the country, even the populations that do speak Russian, see the war as a breach of Ukraine's sovereignty and have no desire to rejoin Russia. It's hard to tell if Putin truly believed that Ukraine would accept Russia with an open heart and not have the resistance, um, but it's possible considering how much Putin's worldview is solely influenced by his version of Soviet history and conception of Russia. Um, but in reality, there's lots of historical animosity between Russia and Ukraine. They first came into Russian possession most fully under Catherine the Great. Arguably, the largest cause of this animosity is Holdemore, which was the man-made famine in Soviet Ukraine from about 32 to 1933, which killed off millions of Ukrainians. Many historians and Ukrainians believe that this famine was planned and executed by Stalin to eliminate Ukrainian independence movements and generally weaken the population. Others argue the famine arose mostly because of rapid Soviet industrialization, but Ukraine recognizes it as a genocide against the Ukrainian people carried out by the Soviet regime. Relations have become more and more strained with the Orange Revolution, when essentially a pro-Russian leader was run off, and as Ukraine has further integrated with the West. For more de detail about the history of this tension and more backdrop on the crisis, um, I recommend for our viewers to listen to our last episode on Ukraine, which was recorded when the invasion first happened. Now I'd like to cover some of the recent developments in the war since our last podcast on Ukraine was recorded. Since the start of the war in February, 6,322 civilians have been killed. This includes 397 children and another 9,634 civilians have been wounded since the war began. This is from the UN Human Rights Department. 
A United Nations Commission has also found that Russian forces were responsible for the vast majority of human rights violations in the beginning of its war in Ukraine. Recently, Russia has commenced a new wave of mobilization. Putin has said that he aims to mobilize 300,000 men within two weeks. However, we should be skeptical of about everything Putin says. Russia is struggling with mobilization as it is with popular support for the war waning. Popular support was never really as high as Putin expected it to be. In all of his delusions, he thought that the Russian people would eagerly rise to sacrifice themselves for the great motherland and reclaim what was theirs. Um, but despite the Kremlin's efforts to frame this as a war against fascism, not all Russians are buying it. Polls show about 20% of Russians don't support the country's activity in Ukraine at all. This population is mostly made up by the young urban class who spends less time watching state-controlled state TV. Consequently, the young are exactly who Putin would like to recruit, and their lack of enthusiasm has now caused him to turn to recruiting from prisons through the Wagner Group, which is a private military company. This lack of support shown contrasts the overwhelming support for the first annexation of Crimea in 2014. Back then, the Crimea region was seen as legitimately part of Russia, but many now do not share the same view about the other regions that have been annexed and think that the war is taking the conflict too far. The strength of their mobilization effort is to be questioned. We are already seeing the weakness of the Russian army for such a huge con country, especially one that markets its, itself as a military strength, you wouldn't really expect them to be struggling this much against such a smaller country like Ukraine. What the conflict has revealed is how their main military strength is in their new nuclear arsenal. But as far as boots on the ground go, they're much less competent than was thought. Their vehicles are falling apart, soldiers aren't properly trained or equipped, and some don't even know the full extent of what's actually going on. One ex-Russian paratrooper brought this up in an interview, saying they were told they were going to be fighting NATO troops. When they got there, they realized this wasn't real and they didn't have sufficient resources. So eventually they resorted to looting Ukrainian towns. The soldiers going into this really only know the propaganda that they were told, making them unprepared to the reality going on. Recently, Russia annexed the four regions of Lunesk, Donetsk, Zaporinza, and Kherson, despite none of these regions actually being fully under Russian control and Ukrainians actually gaining headway. Um, anyways, Russia declared the annexations after holding what it called referendums in the occupied territories. Western governments and Kiev said the votes breached international law and were coercive and non-representative. What basically happened is the Kremlin sent in loyalists to hold a false referendum to annex the regions. Ukrainians were literally pushing Russian front lines back as this happened. Putin, ignoring the reality, nevertheless made a huge speech to all of the Kremlin officials of the Duma and the Russian public about this great success. He argues that Russia is fighting against neo-Nazi fascists that control Ukraine and that they will liberate the Ukrainians who are desperate and thankful for Russia's arrival. He also calls for Russia to remember that the West, in particular the United States, is the true enemy here. The speech to a Western audience seems unhinged. 
He then goes on a transphobic rant about the West's immorality and how we change our girls into boys and how Russian traditional values are under attack. He goes on to say the Ukrainian government has fallen to neo-Nazism and fascism and has committed a genocide against its own people. None of this is really true. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is Jewish, just to show you kind of how outrageous these claims are. Accusations of Nazism have been thrown back and forth between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine has accused Russia of acting like Germany in World War II, citing the illegal annexation and their fascist-like practices. Russia claims Ukraine is in need of liberation from their own Nazi forces. Um, so is there any validity to this Russian claim? Sort of. While there is a far-right problem in Ukraine, they are far from, major from the majority and not in control of the government. Putin's claim is based on a small sliver of truth. There is a neo-Nazi party called Azov, which has been incorporated into the military. But this does not give Putin a free pass to do whatever he would like, or including the annexation of the country. It's neither a justification nor a real cause of the war. In the past few weeks, Ukraine has been hit with a string of missile strikes. The bombardment over the last week has left dozens dead and injured, damaging infrastructure in central areas of Kiev. Putin now says he will slow the string of attacks. Some of these attacks were said to be in retaliation for the bombing of the Kerch Bridge, a key bridge linking Crimea to Russia. Russia, of course, blames Ukraine for the attack. And while many Ukrainians celebrated the explosion, they haven't actually claimed credit for it. Top Ukrainian advisors have even suggested that Russia may have planted the bomb to escalate the war, which wouldn't be the first time they've used this tactic. In summary, there's many theories about the bridge's demise, but very little clarity. Elon Musk is also now threatening to stop funding Starlink, which has been providing internet for many Ukrainians. This is because he tweeted his peace plan for Ukraine and essentially got told to bugger off <laughs> by one of the Ukrainian top officials. Russia's strikes have left more than 1,000 villages and towns in Ukraine without power after targeting energy facilities across the country. The UN is concerned about this destruction for critical energy infrastructure. Blackouts continue across Ukraine as they prepare for a harsh winter. There has also been increasing pressure on Iran as a number of growing countries and international bodies have condemned Iran for supplying and training Russia's military with drones. Russia and Iran, however, deny any collaboration. And NATO says they will deliver an air defense system to Ukraine to help them defend itself against Russian drone attacks using Iranian drones. So those are some recent updates and development with, about the war within Ukraine. I think uh, one of the big problems that we're seeing with Russia right now is um, their military strategy and their use of equipment is um, quite outdated. Um, and it's not as well adjusted as Ukraine, who's been really working pretty hard um, over the past eight years to modernize their military. Yeah, I agree with that point exactly. It was brought up in one of my classes that Russia's military strategy right now is relying on Putin's view that their soldiers are in a sense expendable. They are sending soldiers in as a way to test the ground, see who's there, which, of course, when they do get bombarded and those soldiers eventually get wounded or 
even die, they're losing their personnel. And it's this outdated strategy. And in contrast, Ukraine is directly targeting them and isolating them, blocking roads, really trying to corner their forces into one area where it can attack. And this is much more working better. It's much more strategic using their knowledge of the region to push Russia back, to isolate them, like I said, block those roads, get them somewhere where they can be controlled compared to Putin's let's send them in, see what happens, see how much we can take, and we'll mobilize more soldiers when we need to. Which, of course, this is just really depressing for the Russian people who don't have accurate information about what's going on and don't have as much choice in the matter. I would just add that um, I also think um, when you look at like the way Russia uses its military, um, like the US, for example, in like the Gulf War, we, uh, we like incorporated like um, air air attacks, so like um, air supremacy, um, and like uh, eliminating like all like uh, the Iraqi air defenses, so we could like support troops on the ground. And uh, Russia, they haven't really been able to do that. Um, so their military is right now like really uncoordinated. Like uh, they have like their infantry, um, they're not really able to coordinate that well with their artillery. Um, partially due to like supply issues and then due to Ukraine's strong air defenses, they're also um, not able to um, establish air dominance in Ukraine. And um, that's also been really detrimental to them um, because um, a lot of times like if there's like a Ukrainian advance or if the Russians are trying to advance, they can't uh, support um, their troops um, from the air. And um, that's really hampered their efforts. Um, and there's also sort of just um, a lack of uh, independent um, training and initiative within the uh, Russian military. I guess you could say like the officer class. Yeah. Um, well, I think that partially maybe do because the officer class may not want to be there. Um, yeah. They've also been a kind of dying a lot. Like, yeah. <laughs> Ukraine's been assassinating a lot of them. Yeah. The and I think another thing we're seeing is the, that's really hurting Russia is just the quality of the material they're using, the quality of their artillery, the quality of their tanks. Um, because of how purchases and government works in Russia, a lot of times officials don't use the full amount of money allocated to um, buy such artillery or update the utility artillery, you know, make sure everything's still working in check and pocket the excess money that would have gone to this. And as a result of this rampant, rampant corruption very present in almost every level of Russian society, um, well now it's coming back to really hurt them as their tanks, the tires are giving out after 400 miles. They're leaving them on the streets for Ukraine to deal with after they start working and it's just it's not a way to win a war, that's for sure. I also think um, one of the things that like you, you see sort of when you look at some of like the leaked uh, reports from the Russian government is that Russia, they really expected that Ukraine would, um, the Ukrainian government would sort of collapse very quickly. Mm -hmm. They weren't really planning to fight a long war. And as a result, they sort of used like a lot of their best equipment like at the start of the war. And uh, they didn't really use it very well. Um, like they didn't really plan for like uh, shipping in replacement parts or coordinating their military effectively to protect some of the 
assets which they had in short supply, such as modern tanks, um, modern rocketry. And uh, as a result, they lost a lot of their best equipment and also, more importantly, a lot of their sort of their best soldiers because Russia has a conscript army. Mm -hmm. So sort of like the, the small like professional part of their military has now been like kind of eliminated. And uh, as a result, like right now, like several months into the war, um, it's, it's a lot more difficult for them to uh, respond to Ukrainian counterattacks and to conduct this war than it would have been if they had better strategy at the beginning. I think we're seeing all of those things right now. Let's move on then um, to some of the effects this war has had in Asia and other regions. So I'm gonna be talking about some of the effects of the Ukraine war so far in Asia. Um, so to start off, China has sort of been a very big, um, sort of indirect player in this, uh, in this conflict. Uh, so I guess for a bit of background, during the Cold War, China and the Soviet Union, they were uh, rival communist nations um, after the 1960s uh, during the Sino-Soviet split. And they, they actually even fought a brief war, um, I believe in 1969. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, the relationship between the two countries improved a lot. Um, and in the 2000s, they both uh, sort of joined and helped form a lot of sort of non-Western aligned international organizations like the BRICS group and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, and also during this time since the collapse of the Soviet Union, relations between China and the West, um, which had sort of been steadily improving in the 90s, they began to deteriorate a lot in the 2000s. In recent years, um, sort of like on the technological level, we've seen the US and the EU restrict um, Chinese access to a lot of critical advanced technologies. And the US has also worked to sort of build bridges and improve its relations with countries like India, Vietnam, the Philippines, Australia, as well as others that uh, don't really have the best relationship with China. They have like uh, various maritime and territorial disputes. Um, so in this environment, um, where the US and the EU have been a very critical of Russia and China as well, Russia and China have sort of uh, naturally been pulled together. Um, and China, as the world's second largest economy, is a very important um, partner for uh, Putin's Russia. They're one of the few countries that hasn't uh, completely uh, tried to cut off Russia. That's sort of a, a major uh, world economy. and. Uh, China, actually, before the war, they announced a no-limits partnership with Russia and have increased their purchase of Russian gas uh, since 2014, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea. And uh, China's refusal to sort of uh, go, go along with the US um, sanctions regime, um, that's been really critical for Russia's ability to successfully wage its war while also maintaining its economy. However, despite these uh, favorable developments between, uh, in Russia and China's relationship, their uh, alliance is not as uh, straightforward as it sort of might appear at the surface. Um, and this is because Russia, um, even though they've grown pretty close to China, they've also maintained pretty strong relationships with a lot of their old Cold War partners um, back after the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and a lot of those countries still have mixed relationships with China for example, Vietnam and India. 
And um, Russia itself um, has in the past um, generally not seen itself as sort of a junior partner of China, which at least from like an economic standpoint, that's really what their relationship looks like right now. Russia has seen itself as an independent power with its own foreign policy interests. And um, this has often clashed um, with China in areas not related to their um, mutual antagonism with the United States. And moreover, um, although there is some economic relations between China and Russia, especially with relations to energy, um, China has also maintained um, a fairly amiable relationship with Ukraine actually before the war. Um, and um, they had some limited economic investments and partnerships in the country. And China is also not completely dependent on uh, Russia um, for oil and gas. So when Russia initially launched their full-scale invasion of Ukraine, um, a lot of reports suggested that there, was also, that there was kind of a lot of skepticism in China that Russia would actually uh, move forward with this invasion due to the potential high political costs it could have for Russia. Um, and after Russia did go through with this invasion and they started seeing a lot of logistical challenges when Ukraine's government did not immediately collapse, they turned to countries like um, China as well as other countries like Iran and North Korea for military and economic aid. And although China hasn't um, been um, willing to, um, has so far sort of uh, kept away from giving them direct military aid, they've also refused to condemn their invasion. But also more significantly, the Western sanctions on China, they've had a lot of secondary economic effects. Um, a lot of Chinese companies, they don't really want to do business in um, Russia because Russia is seen as uh, sort of a source for instability, not a very great business environment right now. And China's government has been uh, pretty reluctant to um, expend resources to promote continued investment into Russia, despite um, Russian uh, requests for China to do so to support their uh, floundering economy. Additionally, uh, Russia's sort of failure over the past six months to uh, bring the war to a swift conclusion has um, really sort of rattled um, China. Because like most countries who um, around the world, China's faced a lot of uh, economic disruptions and uh, economic costs, such as higher, uh, higher grain, higher food prices, um, higher gas prices, um, and other supply chain disruptions. And uh, recent moves by China, such as their uh, sort of chilly re reception for Russia at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, suggests that Beijing, uh, they would prefer for this war to be resolved as quickly as possible. And uh, there doesn't seem to much be much indication that Russia necessarily agrees with that perspective. One of the uh, more interesting areas of China and Russia's relationship has uh, sort of been the region of Central Asia, the former Soviet republics there. Um, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Turkmenistan. And um, these regions were traditionally, they were part of the Russian Empire uh, back in the 1800s, and they remained part of the Soviet Union in the 1900s. So they have pretty strong um, sort of uh, economic ties as well as political ties and um, cultural ties with Russia. And since uh, 1991, when the Soviet Union broke up, these countries have still been uh, pretty connected um, economically and politically with Russia. 
However, since the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of China as a major economic power, China has increased a lot of its uh, investments into these countries and have also started to uh, gain more of a political foothold in the region. Many of these countries, they're still formally part of this grouping called the CSTO, which is, uh, it was originally created to be sort of like a military alliance, um, similar to NATO, where Russia would essentially be the security guarantor for a lot of these post-Soviet states. Um, however, in, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine, it's looking increasingly like Russia is unable to fulfill their commitments in Central Asia. For example, recently there was a war, um, sort of a border conflict between uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Kyrgyzstan wanted uh, Russian aid uh, through the CSTO, but uh, Russia didn't really want to expend either military or sort of diplomatic capital in trying to resolve this conflict. So these countries kind of sense that Russia, Russia's uh, economic influence, Russia's political influence, Russia's military influence, um, after this uh, sort of disastrous invasion of Ukraine, it's weakening in Central Asia as well. And uh, this has given other countries like China, uh, which has already been sort of building its influence in the region, um, more room to maneuver. China, as part of its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, they've been working on developing rail links um, and um, other economic links through Central Asia um, to Europe that would actually bypass Russia. Um, and uh, this is sort of a sign that uh, these regions uh, are no longer feel as dependent on Russia. And uh, additionally, the United States also has um, made uh, diplomatic overtures to a lot of the Central Asian states, um, also hoping to uh, build a diplomatic influence here. So I think that uh, in the future, we'll probably see these uh, regions become, uh, these countries become more detached from uh, Russia and uh, more independent as well as more uh, dependent on China, both economically and uh, uh, diplomatically. Yeah, I think we really can see the diminishing of Russia's influence in Central Asia, with especially a lot of those countries that used to really rely on them for security, um, for protecting their interests, as long with economic things as well. Um, we're seeing this with Azerbaijan and Armenia too, which we'll go into a little bit later. Um, but yeah, and, and an effect of this is a lot of these co countries that Russia once used to control may end up allying more strongly with China or even the West, depending on which way they will lean. One other factor um, sort of in their relationship is that sort of like Ukraine, there are still a lot of uh, Russian minorities mm -hmm. in uh, some of these Central Asian countries, especially Kazakhstan. Uh, they, at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union, they had a very large Russian population, I believe around uh, 40%. And um, since then, a lot of these Russian, um, Russian minorities have migrated back to Russia. But there is still a sizable Russian minority, which gives uh, Russia influence in the region, but also um, could create um, a variety of security concerns for these countries, given Russia's behavior in Ukraine, um, where Russian minorities have a, sort of a, served as a justification for uh, Russian military involvement. Yeah, and I liked what you were saying 
Arjun, about how China and Xi Jinping aren't exactly happy with Russia right now at the moment either, and how their relations, even though they are still on the same side, have a bit more tension than what you might assume. I think Xi Jinping was promised a short war, one that would be easily won by Russia and not have this many adverse economic effects that have impacted them. And I would assume that he's starting to get upset with Putin. Um, the war is continuing. It's hurting Russia. It's hurting the regions around it. And this isn't what Putin promised. And Putin's threats for using his nuclear arsenal aren't making China very happy either. I personally do not think they would continue to back Putin if he did decide to, to use um, his nuclear arsenal. But once again, that's my personal opinion. I just, I cannot see China wanting to embroil itself further in that conflict when it still values um, its connection with the West and many other regions that would very strongly oppose any use of nuclear weapons by Russia. So it's interesting when we'll see what happens. Now I'm going to go over some of the reactions in Southeast Asia to uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war. Southeast Asia, their uh, reactions um, has sort of been fairly mixed so far, and it's kind of uh, followed a couple major themes. Um, we see a lot of these countries, they sort of value their short-term economic and uh, military uh, relationships with Russia more than sort of the long-term uh, humanitarian um, interests as well as Western pressure uh, to support Ukraine. And also, when we look at just the views of the populations of these countries, um, what they think of the conflict, um, we can see a lot of generational divides between uh, sort of older generations, and uh, a lot of them still have um, warmer memories of Russia, um, as well as sort of a residual um, Cold War hostility towards uh, other countries like China and the United States. A lot of them remember Russia as like a firm and secure ally. Um, whereas a lot of the younger generation, um, which didn't really grow up during uh, the Cold War era, they're a lot more skeptical of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. So as far as uh, some of the particular countries go, um, overall, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, they've so far had a very weak reaction to the Ukraine war. Um, they've uh, refused to directly condemn Russia or the invasion, and they've just called for peaceful dialogue and negotiations. This is uh, partially because Russia is a major trading partner in the region, but there is disagreements between the individual Southeast Asian nations between how much they've uh, sort of turned a blind eye towards Russia's invasion. So far, Singapore has had one of the strongest responses to Russia so far. They've uh, explicitly condemned Russia's invasion, and they have placed some sanctions on Russia. And this uh, sort of reflects uh, Singapore's commitment to a rules-based international order. And uh, Singapore also, unlike uh, many of the other Southeast Asian nations, they are uh, less dependent on Russia for uh, military aid. On the other hand, Thailand, their authorities, um, have uh, remained uh, steadfastly neutral. They've uh, refused to condemn Russia. And um, a lot of the sort of state-owned uh, television channels in 
uh, Thailand uh, run uh, sort of uh, in accordance with the views of the military. They were actually, um, they had some, they were promoting some uh, pro-Russian views in the lead up to the invasion and a bit afterwards. However, uh, since then, um, the Thailand's government has uh, sort of cracked down on that. However, in Thailand, we can see a pretty major generational divide as far as views of Russia goes. The current uh, military um, military of Thailand, um, which has a lot of uh, governmental control, um, as well as the monarchy, they're viewed quite uh, negatively by the younger population. And uh, similarly, the younger population also has a far more negative view of Russia and are far more willing to explicitly condemn the war compared to older the older population. Myanmar um, is currently under um, military rule and uh, they've actually taken a pro-Russian position. Um, this is likely motivated by the fact that um, the United States and the European Union have been uh, very critical of Myanmar's uh, slide back towards uh, military rule. And Myanmar has also had a uh, more warm relationship with China, which has also been um, sort of tacitly supporting some of uh, Russian, Russia's actions um, during the conflict. So Myanmar has uh, so far uh, sort of uh, promoted a lot of uh, Russia's positions and they've refused to condemn Russia. Vietnam is uh, one of the, um, has also had a somewhat of a neutral response. Vietnam was, uh, of course, allies with the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union supported Vietnam, uh, Vietnam's communist uh, government during its uh, war of independence against France, um, as well as later during the Vietnam War against the United States. And after the uh, Sino-Soviet split, um, relations between China and Vietnam uh, deteriorated pretty quickly, and uh, Vietnam remained um, loyal to the Soviet Union, and uh, Russia continued to supply Vietnam with uh, military equipment through the end of the Cold War. And since then, Russia and Vietnam have maintained a fairly warm relationship, um, even though there isn't necessarily much economic um, trade um, between Russia and Vietnam. Vietnam remains um, highly dependent on Russian military imports. And um, due to this, um, this has likely motivated uh, Vietnam's uh, strategic neutrality in the conflict. This uh, lies in pretty strong contrast to China, which Vietnam still has a mixed relationship with. Um, Vietnam and China have uh, some maritime disputes remaining, and uh, that uh, sort of uh, reflects the uh, complex dynamics of uh, the, the war in Southeast Asia. Similarly to Southeast Asia, India has uh, so far taken a neutral view of the conflict. Um, like Vietnam, India was a key uh, Russian partner during the Cold War. India has a variety of territorial disputes with China, um, and during the Cold War, um, Russia supported India in those disputes. Um, the Soviet Union also uh, supported India um, in relation to its relationship with the United States, which was also quite negative um, for much of the Cold War. Uh, the United States was an ally of Pakistan, which uh, didn't uh, have, still doesn't have uh, great relations with India to this day. The Indian government, um, they've uh, actually increased their purchase of Russian oil 
Um, and they've continued their purchase of uh, Russian military equipment. And it's looking pretty unlikely that we're going to get a uh, condemnation of Russia's uh, war from India. Despite um, these sort of a surface level um, positive relations between India and Russia, there are a variety of uh, sort of long-term trends that um, could um, eventually sort of imperil um, Russia and India's uh, close relationship at the moment. India has deepened a lot of its both economic and uh, military ties with Western nations such as Israel, uh, France, and the United States. Their military is um, less dependent on uh, Russian uh, supplies than during the Cold War. And um, sort of similar to Southeast Asian countries, a lot of the younger generation in India is uh, less, feels less uh, tied uh, to Russia um, compared to the older generations who grew up during the Cold War. Thank you, Arjun, for that recap of how the war has affected Central Asia. Now we're going to turn to the effects in Europe. Right now, Europe is seeing high market prices for energy. Um, they're calling on their citizens to reduce their demand, calling for a 16% reduction as they try to decrease the amount of oil and natural gas that they buy from Russia. Russia is very rich in oil and natural gas, and Europe has relied on Russia being a supplier until recently. In response, Russia has increased sales to India and China, but Germany and the Netherlands still remain their largest buyers. Meanwhile, Lithuania and Poland are preparing for potential conflict, scared that they will be dragged into this war because of their status as post-USR states with ties to Russia. Like many Eastern European countries, Lithuania has already been impacted by the war with supply lines shut down, they are now paying sometimes three times as much for common goods that used to come from Russia. We are also seeing the escalation between Poland and Belarus. This is because Belarus is a key ally of Russia's. Belarusian dictator Lukashenko has been buddy-buddy with Putin for a while, as they both share a love of authoritarian tactics. Poland has advised its citizens to leave Belarus and Belarus, as Belarus has given security forces broad powers to prevent or respond to, quote, provocations from neighboring countries. What they consider to be a legitimate provocation is unknown, but Belarus and keeping Belarus as a key ally is strategic for Putin as Belarus borders three NATO countries. Another facet of this war is the resurgence of the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Russia is committed by treaty to defend Armenia from Azerbaijan, while Turkey is pushing to support Azerbaijan. With the war in Ukraine, Azerbaijan has used this as an opportunity to escalate the conflict, knowing that Russia is preoccupied with Ukraine and not in any position to give military support to Armenia. This conflict dates back to the 80s, but since 1994, there has been a ceasefire. However, this has been broken. Russia was actually one that brokered the ceasefire originally. For some background, this is mostly an ethnic and territorial conflict over, the dis over a disputed region inhabited by mostly ethnic Armenians, but surrounded by districts inhabited by Azerbaijanis. 
The conflict began in 88 when Armenians demanded the region be transferred from Soviet Azerbaijan to Soviet Armenia. The conflict escalated into a full-scale war in the 90s and then later transformed into a low-intensity conflict until it re-escalated in intensity in 2016 and another full-scale war in 2020. Russia has kind of maintained frozen conflicts in regions like Georgia, Moldova, Armenia, and Azerbaijan as a way to leverage these countries. But now his loss in Ukraine is loosening his grip on these regions as the frozen conflicts thaw and resurge. We are seeing this in Armenia and Azerbaijan as Azerbaijan has now attacked Armenia in the most significant outbreak of violence since the 2020 war. Armenia has reported horrible atrocities, including 105 service members killed and six civilians wounded. While Azerbaijan claims members of its own service have died and two civilians were hurt. This isn't good for Putin either. This is just another loss in his war with Ukraine. Armenia is now giving up on Russia as a guarantee for security and looking towards the West for political support, which is exactly what Putin doesn't want. Both Moldova and Georgia have over been, time been trying to fight back against Putin's puppet regimes and are also both on track towards westernization. The war in Ukraine may push them even further this way. We are seeing the loss of Putin's control in the near abroad. The war in Ukraine was essentially to gain more control in this region, but it is actually having the adverse effect pushing regimes closer either towards westernization or looking to China for support. Either way, Russia is not winning here. I hope that gives a brief background to the war, its current developments, and how it is affecting Asia and Europe. We'd like to turn to a little bit of discussion about, is there an end in sight for this war? Um, how is this going to end? Arjun, what do you think? So I think uh, when you look at the situation on the ground, um, we uh, saw in September that uh, Ukraine, um, they made a very large advance in the Kharkiv region. Uh, they drove Russian forces from the outskirts of the city of Kharkiv, um, pretty much out of the province. And um, right now, they're uh, trying to move into uh, the uh, Luhansk uh, Oblast, um, the northern part of it. And um, similarly, um, we can see on sort of the other part of Ukraine, in southern Ukraine, in the Kherson Oblast, a uh, grouping of Russian soldiers is on the uh, western side of Dnieper uh, River. And uh, as a result, since Ukraine has blown up a lot of the bridge crossings over the river, they've been cut off from Russia. So these uh, two regions, um, sort of the northern Luhansk Oblast and uh, the western portion of the Kherson Oblast, the uh, Russian uh, military position there, it looks uh, pretty uh, pretty bad, it's not in great shape. So um, I think um, it is pretty probable that um, Russia will be forced to uh, withdraw from Kherson and uh, from um, a large part of the uh, parts of Luhansk Oblast, northern Luhansk Oblast, which they occupied. That's gonna be definitely a humiliation for uh, Putin because uh, the city of Kherson is the only uh, administrative uh, capital in uh, Ukraine, which uh, Putin has actually successfully captured. So its fall to the Ukrainians um, 
would uh, be a very big blow to the Russian war effort. And um, there's also um, one of the main canals um, that brings uh, water into Crimea, which the Ukrainians had actually turned off um, before this, uh, this new round of hostilities erupted. That uh, canal would be lost to the Ukrainians uh, if they lose the west bank of the Dnieper. Um, and that's also going to be um, a pretty big blow to Vladimir Putin. And um, this war, um, Vladimir Putin has really tied his uh, personal reputation um, to his image as a um, sort of as a successful uh, military leader, a successful sort of strongman. Um, so military defeat would be uh, quite devastating for uh, Russia's leader. Um, it could very well spell, spell the uh, fall of Putin and the end of his regime. Um, like we've seen previously, like in the 1900s, uh, military defeat in World War I um, sparked a revolution in Russia. Um, in the 1980s, military defeat in Afghanistan helped spark the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's not really unprecedented to be a potential end to this conflict. I do also think that we have to remember that there is still a solid amount of support for Putin in general in Russia. There would need to be an organized opposition to actually carry this out. And with Navalny in jail and most protests being youth-led, there isn't really this formal opposition movement that I think would need to bring down Putin. But his reputation here is really diminishing, and his reputation partially is what keeps the oligarchs in check with him. Um, you know, he leverages his corruption, his power to make sure that these oligarchs are still backing him. And with the sanctions against the Russian economy, I think many of Putin's inner oligarch circle is starting to get a little upset with him. And possibly if this continued and got even worse, I could maybe see one of a member of these groups making some type of move to oust Putin. But even then, I think what really keeps Putin legitimate is his overall support still from the Russian people. And while we are seeing discontent about the war, still there isn't really any option besides Putin. If he was to go, who would take his place? With Navalny in jail and no real other standout politician that unites the people like Putin has tried to, or at least has in the past, um, that it's kind of a tough situation for Russians. Especially Russians don't always have the most political participation in the liveliest civil society. Um, and we can really contrast this with the protests that we're seeing in Iran right now to another authoritarian regime where there's just these huge protests of people risking their lives. Um, thousands and thousands of people. But in Russia, while there has been some protests against mobilization for the war, it's not on the same scale. So if there's an end, I don't know how likely it'll be coming from Putin getting disposed of and replaced or officially stepping down or withdrawing may be a self-sacrifice for his image if he chose for that. I think another question too is if a peace treaty was to be brokered, would the region of Crimea remain with Russia or Ukraine? Um, Ukraine is definitely pushing to get that region of Crimea back, but um, many people do not see that happening. I do think um, that um, a lot of the European governments, they've sort of uh, uh, kept, uh, viewed Crimea differently than uh, Russia's uh, more recent gains. However, Russia's decision to annex um, 
uh, Kherson, uh, Luhansk, and the other oblasts um, of Ukraine. That sort of uh, wiped away those differences um, as far as uh, international law goes um, and uh, presents a stronger, stronger legal case um, for Ukraine to continue the war. Um, I think one of the uh, biggest remaining questions right now is uh, will uh, Putin uh, get to the point where he uh, decides to use uh, nuclear uh, weapons? Um, and that is a sort of an, definitely an open question right now. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden recently said that uh, he believes that uh, the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at its highest point since the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is uh, somewhat of a scary thought. Um, but uh, I, I do think there are still um, reasons why uh, Vladimir Putin would be hesitant to use uh, nuclear weapons beyond the di diplomatic repercussions. It's also unclear just how much benefit um, nuclear weapons would actually have on the battlefield um, because this is a pretty spread out war. Um, so even if uh, Putin was to like eliminate like one um, Ukrainian military base, um, that's really not going to change the trajectory of the war, but it is going to generate a significant amount of diplomatic uh, blowback for Putin and uh, Russia's war effort. So it's, uh, it's, it's sort of unclear how badly Russia would need to be uh, losing this war um, to the point where they might uh, resort to nuclear weapons. And it's also unclear how much benefit um, on the battlefield Russia would actually get, um, assuming they were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. So that will conclude our podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, come back next time for more global events and history with Globe Bears at IRCB. Thank you.